Hello, and welcome to episode five of What's on the Pile, a podcast about movies where we sometimes attribute the wrong actor. I'm Nathan Besner, and joining me is Don Wells. Hello. Shane Lee. Hey. And Andrew Jenner. Present. This week, we're starting with the Terry Gilliam film Jabberwocky, about a hapless Michael Palin as he blunders through medieval times. After that, we'll be discussing Gilliam's classic, kinda sorta children's film, Time Bandits, starring all kinds of famous people. Uh, but starting with Jabberwocky, uh, this was definitely from my pile. Who else hadn't seen it? I had not seen it. I hadn't seen it. I, I had seen it. I, I've seen it several times, but it had been a while. So, uh, again, it was, as always, gratifying to revisit it. I really enjoyed this film. I, it, it was cartoonish in a fun way, I think. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, Don? Yeah, it definitely was. Uh, it, uh, it, had the, um, it had the Terry Gilliam hallmarks of a uh, uh, oddly accurate depiction of the Middle Ages uh, and the theme of an impossibly idealistic man surrounded by awful people. He, he does seem to like that theme a lot. <laughs> uh, Shane. I, can, I can definitely see that as a recurring element. <laughs> Shane, what did you think? I liked it a lot. I actually wished I'd seen this movie as a kid. If I'd seen it as a kid, it would have been one of my all-time favorites. Although, I think mm. I think some of the violence, mainly just the skeletons, the bloody skeletons with the heads attached, uh, would have scarred me as a kid. Um, mm. Although, you know, as a kid, if I'd seen the movie, if I saw a movie, it was probably on basic cable just because we didn't have any pay channels, so that stuff might have been edited out including the, uh, the full frontal nudity in this PG-rated film. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I would have loved it. I, I, I enjoyed it as an adult, and I think I, this would have been right up my alley as a, as a kid as well. Yeah, I, I was a little surprised by the PG rating, but then I had to put myself into the, the time that the PG existed and remind myself that PG-13 did not exist yet when this was out. Yeah, P- PG-rated movies prior to the PG-13 were a very different animal from from what we're used to at this point. Although, I mean, at this point, it's interesting to note. I think that uh, the full frontal nudity alone would probably be enough to get this uh, this an R uh, these days. To say nothing of you know the red blood uh, on the uh, on the chunky skeletons and such. Uh, this is also uh, early in Terry Gilliam's career. Uh, I found that it had. Still, a a lot of Python-esque elements. Uh, For listeners who do not know, he comes from a comedy troupe called Monty Python's Flying Circus. Uh, You probably do know, and this is a waste of time. Uh, (laughs) If you're listening to a podcast about Jabberwocky and Time Bandits, you probably know what Monty Python is. I I actually read on Wikipedia that this, this was released in the U.S. as Monty Python's Jabberwocky, against Gilliam's wishes. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah I mean I could understand why they would do that but I could also understand why he would object yeah John Cleese also objected apparently uh, he very much did not want the Monty Python name to be on it um, and then of course uh, Michael Palin and uh, Terry Jones show up yeah the and only Gilliam ones. himself yeah. uh, and that's true and that's true. Uh, yeah, Gilliam himself, of course, is in it. Uh, apparently, to ju- uh, I, I didn't know this, but I gathered from uh, watching that uh, with the uh, commentary that apparently the role Gilliam uh, uh, played was originally uh, supposed to be Dudley Moore, but he had to uh, bow out at the last second. So that would be interesting. You know, have Dudley Moore, have Dudley Moore, who was at that point one of the biggest comedy actors in the world, uh, show up for two minutes, at which point he gets eaten by a monster. Uh, <laughs> would have liked to have seen that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's a fair measure of interesting insight in this in the uh, commentary, which I had not watched before. Uh, the one that particularly uh, got me that I didn't know about, uh, especially since it's not even documented on uh, the film or Terry Gilliam's uh, Wikipedia page, was basically one of the reasons that they ended up going into this project uh, was because they had spent years unsuccessfully trying to get uh, funding for an adaptation of Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast. Uh which uh, is kind of the last word in British mid-century phantasmagoria, uh, and uh, which itself didn't finally get a, uh, an adaptation until uh, the BBC managed to do it in 2000. Uh, but uh, that, that one kind of floored me, because that's an amazing piece of work, and Gilliam's Gormenghast, I think, would have been absolutely astonishing if he had gotten the money for it. But in lieu of, uh, of that, I take this as... 
uh, and again, a phenomenon that, uh, that uh, Palin and uh, Gilliam did observe in the uh, commentary. This is one of the first films to really lean on the bad teeth for medieval uh, people. It <laughs> is outside of some films shot in the 70s in and uh, set in contemporary Florida. It may well be the grimiest movie I have seen from up to that point in time. <laughs> It is pretty disgusting. Uh, a lot of uh, people getting peed on. Yeah, I mean, pretty, pretty much everything, everybody except for Michael Palin. He looked oddly clean and healthy compared to everybody else. He still got peed on as much as anybody. Yeah. Though. <laughs> I think three times in one scene. That was pretty good. <laughs> oh, so disgusting. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, it has a singular aesthetic, which... Uh, I don't think even, uh, I mean, it, there are some people who think it has a, a, a distinct sort of physical resemblance to uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which I can definitely see uh, from the, uh, uh, the cinematography as much as anything else. Uh, I think that both this and, uh, and Holy Grail had uh, uh, shared a cinematographer, or at least a cameraman, uh, I believe his last name was Corbett. I forget his first name. Uh, apparently, he was trained in commercials by Ridley Scott, however. Uh, so that's uh, an interesting uh, uh, connection that I didn't know about. Um, but in any case, the, uh, the aesthetic of the film is some of the most complete world-building that I've seen in any picture up to that point, especially any picture that apparently had a budget as minuscule as this one did. Uh, yeah, what was the budget? It was something like I think it was half a million. It was something like half a million. It was uh, it, it was you know peanuts by comparison. And uh, I hate to keep going back to the commentary, but this was another fun story that apparently they were shooting at uh, Shepperton Studios at the same time that Star Wars was shooting at Elstree across town, and so they actually ended up sharing a lot of crew between the two, and uh, apparently. Um, this is this may well just be Gilliam throwing shade on another director, but uh, apparently they really loved working on Jabberwocky and really uh, uh, hated working on Star Wars because quote that Lucas guy has no idea what he's doing end quote. <laughs> <laughs> oh poor George Lucas, he gets bagged on so much, and he gave us such magical films. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, 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 that's probably a conversation for another episode. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I know at least you, Nate, have probably been around for one of the uh, uh, ongoing periodic iterations of uh, the uh, monologue slash rant that I occasionally come out with that I refer to as George Lucas ate my baby. Uh, yes, la I last, remember that. Last time I timed it, I think it was about 50 minutes long. But <laughs> in any case... <laughs> Maybe we'll record it one day. Yeah, uh, sometime. No, next iteration. <laughs> but in, in the meantime, this is uh, this. This was, of course, uh, Gilliam's first solo directorial uh, effort. He had shared duties with uh, with Terry Jones on uh, the uh, on uh, uh, the Holy Grail, uh, and uh, I think it's sort of salutary that uh, the first person we see in the movie uh, is Terry Jones. Kind of, uh, you know, just uh, sort of a uh, a wink and a wave off, and uh, and a good luck, old chap. Uh, but uh, and then, of course, he gets promptly eaten by uh, by a monster and doesn't appear in any of the rest of the film, which is also a sort of a pretty definitive way of kind of separating this picture's legacy from its predecessor. But uh, just in terms of the aesthetic of the film, it is. I don't know, it's, it's this bizarro cross of uh, what we would at this point, uh, like proto-steampunk uh, with a serious sidecar of medievalist uh, folk horror uh, <laughs> and, and a great deal of, uh, of uh, fairy tale effort. There, there's a lots, there are lots of films that, or lots of uh, sub-genres that have manifested uh, since this was released that either consciously or unconsciously probably could look back to, uh, to Jabberwocky as a common ancestor. There's an element of splatter comedy to the movie. That was, uh, I think, is, probably yeah. the, uh, the thing that most impressed me the first time that I saw it, which was, I think, when I was like 12 on the A&E network, back when they showed, you know, arts and entertainment. Uh, but... Uh, I remember the moment that uh, that really had me falling on my knees uh, uh, and, uh, and screaming, oh my God, uh, because up to this point, this was just about the most flagellantly insane film I think I had ever seen, uh, was uh, the uh, uh, the bit where the king um, 
uh, sentences the uh, uh, the one gentleman to death because Michael Palin has disappeared. And on what charge, Your Majesty? Cannibalism. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. That that one really stuck with me. I I had a particular moment that gave me a belly laugh, which was uh, the death of the squire when he gets oh, yeah. squished under the bed. Just a rush <laughs> of blood under yeah, the rush of blood coming up <laughs> underneath the bed. That was awesome. Yeah. That was my favorite moment in the entire film. But um, uh, Maxwell played the king. Uh, I really thought that his performance was inspired. Uh, he, IMDb cites this movie as one of the things he's known for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, mean, did... I say certainly that's true for American uh, slightly hipsterish audiences, perhaps. Um... Now, I, I was under the impression that he was a, a very big comedian in uh, Britain, particularly in the uh, the late 60s and 70s. He had undergo he had had a, a bit of a downturn, apparently, when this uh, came out. But it, it ended up uh, being, in its own strange little way, one of his biggest hits uh, in uh, in uh, the cinema. I I am curious uh, what uh, everybody's favorite moment might have been, because I I think we all liked the movie, so. Uh... What is everybody's favorite moment? Uh, let's start with uh, Don. Uh, don't start with me because I'm not sure. Okay, let's start with Shane. Um, well, one of my favorites was actually the opening with Terry Jones. It really gave off a. It really reminded me of Evil Dead Two. Uh, mm. I, I feel like Sam Raimi mm. definitely watched this movie and took some inspiration on the, you know the way the the cameras in his face and he's just going insane. It, it felt a lot like the scene where Ash is being chased and then being just hurtled through space. That's maybe not my favorite moment, but that's a moment that, you know, I wrote down in my notes, I wrote down immediately like, Oh, Hey, this is, this is cool. This is like evil dead too. And sets kind of a tone. And at that point I didn't yet know quite that it was going to be a comedy. So I was like, Oh, this is going to be scary. Uh, so I, I did get a little worried just because I'm not great with scary movies. Um, but yeah, it was, that, that was, it was, it was a great opening for me. How about you, Andy? What's oh, you've already shared your favorite well, moment. Well, <laughs> I, I do have I do have a runner-up that sticks with me, just because it is such a sterling piece of visual effects work. Uh, the bit where uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the king is uh, talking to his princess about uh, living in, I guess it was the East Tower, and they look across to the East Tower, which immediately crumbles under the rainfall. Uh, I thought it was just an amazing, amazing yeah. visual effect that's uh, that stuck with me for uh, for all these yeah. years. In, in yeah. its own unutterably punkish grimy way the film is visually damn near flawless um, yeah uh, so uh, but uh, that that's uh, that's the effect particularly other than uh, as uh, as Shane mentioned the uh, the very evil dead ish uh, opening uh, th- those are the bits that really stick with me and then of course the uh, the wonderful irony of the conclusion of the film as well <laughs> which I imagine well, we'll probably get into in another minute. I'll get- <laughs> I'll actually I'll actually add just an un, uh, a sort of unusual bit. Uh, I the the collapsing tower <laughs> actually is the one that stuck with me because it did uh, uh, it does sort of stand out. There's there's a sort of way in which Gilliam films things decaying or falling apart. Uh, and he really captures that uh, very well. But uh, but the, but the one is when the three merchants come. Uh, come in to the to have their counsel with the king there's a bit where like one gets ahead of the other and there's oh we're off to you all all right we're left to you uh but the one who generously allowed he just gives this look to the third merchant like fuck you <laughs> and, I, and i just like how like nothing is made of it like it's not set up in anyone but it's just clear like hey just i just don't like you <laughs> it's just that a entire... subtle it's just a subtle little thing done purely by the acting. It was, and it was, it was just a nice moment. I liked it. That entire sequence was really good, leading up to it with, uh, with them trying to uh, outrun each other with their guys, yeah. <laughs> and then that one guy who was in the back is going too fast, and he falls over. He falls on his ass. I think I it's that. the cardinal. <laughs> oh, is that the cardinal? <laughs> yeah, because his, his nice red outfit. Is completely there, there is a distinct. <laughs> sort of extended and consistent uh, extended middle finger pointed in all directions in this movie because the uh, the lower class people are garbage the commerce people are garbage uh, the uh, uh, the aristocracy is garbage uh, and there is appropriately garbage absolutely frickin everywhere um, 
It's uh, like I say, it 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 uh, it, it has a sort of proto-punkish mentality. Uh, I think. Uh, that uh, anticipated uh, uh, kind of a lot of the larger developments in British culture in the next few years. Now, I'm not going to say that's causational. I'm just saying that uh, that I think uh, Gilliam may have caught that wave a little bit before almost anybody else did. The only halfway different, go- halfway decent government official is that bishop who uh, tries to discourage the king from jousting anymore because they're losing too many knights. <laughs> <laughs> and is he the one who makes that's the suggestion? A, that's actually, an, yeah, I think that's another, he's another one who, uh, or, or that's another good bit, the hide-and-seek tournament to determine the Oh, champion. the Chamberlain. <laughs> yes. Oh, the Chamberlain, yeah. uh, the uh, the great uh, John Le Mesurier, uh, or Le Mesurier, I've never figured out how to pronounce it. They, uh, the, the Brits call him John Le Mes, he's in so much stuff. Uh, <laughs> But uh, the first time that I saw it, I actually thought that he was John Cleese under very heavy makeup because I'd never seen him before. But it turns out that he is, in fact, a completely different and extremely venerable British character actor. Oh, yeah. John Cleese made it clear he wanted nothing to do with this movie. (laughs) Not his style, huh? No, no. I don't think he likes that Terry Gilliam was breaking away from Python. Oh. Well, he he did Time Bandits just a few years later. Yeah, maybe he got over it. Uh, I mean, uh, they they still got all all back together for you know Life of Brian and uh, and uh, the meaning of life, which is uh, still one of the movies on my pile that uh, that we probably have to get to at some point. Yeah, so. I was I, I was actually looking on Netflix last night. They seem to have every single Monty Python thing except for Meaning of Life. They've got a bunch of the shows. They got two of the movies. I th- well, I think uh, let me see the uh, see this and. Uh, um, the Holy Grail, and now for something completely different, were uh, carried at, at least up until recently through Sony. I believe Life of Brian was carried through Paramount. Uh, Meaning of Life was universal, so it's possible it's just some kind of bizarro rights thing. Well, uh, let's talk for a moment about the inspiration for the film. Uh, Terry Gilliam has said that he used the Lewis Carroll po- poem as a jumping-off point to create something uh, with uh, Alverson. Uh What's his name? Uh, I've forgotten the the other the co-writer's name. Oh, Alverson. Char- uh, oh, Char- uh, Charles McCoyne. Really? I thought it was Alverson. Oh. Yeah, Charles uh, Alverson. Oh, oops. Yeah, yeah. No, Charles okay. Alverson was the uh, was the co-writer. Yeah, it was McCoyne um, who uh, worked with him on later stuff, including Time Bandits. It's my mistake. <laughs> but using using Carol as a jumping off point and how how Lewis Carroll kind of applies to to Terry Gilliam's work uh as a whole uh, he really loves that kind of nonsense ideal that that lewis carroll kind of championed uh what do you guys think about that well i i i, I appreciated the uh the fact that uh, in the movie they did periodically come back to sort of reiterations of the uh, the poem itself but uh, I take the movie as a whole as sort of a, an attempt to do a serious adaptation of something that is inherently ridiculous. Uh, and, and in that regard, I think it, uh, it works really well because uh, basically it's, uh, it's Gilliam's iteration of a fractured fairy tale. Uh, up to and including the uh, uh, the conclusion, which uh, I'm going to circle back to at this point, uh, having mentioned it several minutes ago, because uh, I one uh, I love the, absolutely adore the irony of the finale, in that our hero was a completely modest man, beset at all turns, and he ends up getting exactly what he deserves, which turns out to be much much more than he wanted ever under any circumstances. <laughs> And the thing, the thing is, Cooper is an indomitably decent guy. He's really doing his best. Uh, he's a deer in the headlights most of the time. But uh, again, that that has uh, resonance with uh, with sort of fairy uh, fairy tale uh, tropes in the first place. It's just this is kind of carrying it to it lo- to it to its logical conclusion. You have some peasant who ends up accidentally killing the dragon. He's not instantly a prince. He's still a frickin' peasant. <laughs> And I was wondering when he when he ends up with the princess at the end. So when I first saw the princess, I assumed it was Shelley Duvall. I mean, she looks just like her. I I did too. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if the pa- the Palin and Shelley Duvall pairing, I think that happens twice in Time Bandits. It's meant to be sort of like descendants of these two characters. <laughs> I, I watched I watched I watched this one first, and then I saw Time Bandits, both for the first Pansy, time. So Pansy, Pansy is Pansy and Vincent. I I hadn't thought of that, but I rather like that idea. Um, I do too. 
Yeah. I only know this because I have the Wikipedia up in front of me uh, here. Uh, Deborah Fallander was the uh, the princess, and uh, the only particular thing that uh, that um, Gilliam had to mention about her from the uh, from the commentary was uh, was uh, that she was American and was having a lot of difficulty with the accent. <laughs> you know, I I found out today that Terry Gilliam was American. I always assumed he was British. I know he's a he's a British citizen now, but he's from Minnesota. I just assumed yeah. because of his involvement with Python that he was British, but yeah, yeah he I, was I, their one American member. I'd I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, Gilliam's earlier career uh, here, uh, in that I do I do think that this is one of the more Python esque films that he's done, and um, I I think that he hadn't found his individual voice yet, in my opinion, and I think that watching him discover that voice via this film is 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 pretty incredible that you're able to watch the progression of a filmmaker in real time with a with a film where he's getting away from his kind of parents uh the pythons and uh setting out and doing his own thing uh that's what i found most interesting about the film no i'll take that as a legitimate view on it as I say, it, it it's one of those things that uh, I've seen and seen several times, but it's been so long that, uh, well, I, I, I ended up uh, just watching it with the commentary last night, and I belatedly realized that I really probably ought to have watched it again without the commentary before I watched it with the commentary, but I still think I managed to keep up to a great extent. But uh, it remains as bracing and frickin' weird and just kind of flagellantly you know they keep hitting you, and you keep saying not to stop. Bonkers, uh, as it uh, as I, I remembered it being from uh, from my earlier viewings, which were mostly quite a long time ago. So it was uh, it, it was uh, it was gratifying to uh, to revisit it uh, with uh, with these now much older eyes. Well, it's also nice looking back, uh, knowing his career at this point, um, looking at at certain little details that that are precursors to say special visual effects that he liked to use in future films. Um, and I look at the, uh, the design of the punch and Judy, uh, uh, kind of one man traveling show, uh, the punch and Judy, uh, uh, puppet booth that had the legs coming out of it. Um, that particular idea was reused in, uh, in time bandits, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. Uh, but he originally designed it for Jabberwocky, and I, I like his kind of revisiting uh, visual items like that. Yeah, I mean, I watched both these for the, for the first time in succession, and I'm having trouble keeping them apart, to be honest. It's because the, the styles are consistent in, in some of the, the... Well, Time Bandits is a lot cleaner looking. Yeah. <laughs> time Bandits does not always look like it smells bad. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but, uh, but does anybody say, have any final thoughts? I guess you do. <laughs> uh, Go, I was, for uh, Go for I, it. Go for it. Well, I was just going to say, uh, now, of course, when I say that uh, Jabberwocky looks like it smells bad, it's this is one of those rare movies where that I think that actually does cross the Rubicon uh, from bug to feature. Uh, it's, uh, as I say, it's extraordinary will, uh, world building. It is... Not for the easily squeamed, even if you're not talking about blood. There's enough random bodily functions and you know bad teeth and grotesque things going on in this movie that you have to have a pretty robust calculus for filth uh, to uh, to get through it comfortably. Uh, and even well, I don't think comfortably is the word I'm looking for there, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, taking it as. Well, thank goodness that I don't have to live in that world. Isn't this an interesting story that goes on in the world, uh, or, or uh, that the, in, in this world? I mean, up to and including uh, the uh, apparently Gilliam uh, considered the uh, the rubber suited uh, Jabberwocky, as it turns up at the end, as sort of a deliberate homage to uh, to Japanese uh, rubber suit monster movies uh, as well. So that's uh, a little bit adjacent to, to uh, uh, your common territories over there, Nate. Oh, well, that's that's actually something I completely forgot to talk about was the design of the Jabberwock itself. What a horrifying creature and interestingly um, had to be puppeted in reverse. Uh, the the actor in the suit had to uh, go in backwards to, to create the bird like walking. That had to be a completely surreal experience, even as a technician. <laughs> no, but uh, this—it's—I the, the, mean—they've been teasing the Jabberwocky all of this time. It's you know 
skinned people, uh, or it's uh, uh, skinned and uh, butchered and demeated people alive for the full running time. It finally turns up, and it's this weird you know, dime store, you know, thrift shop, you know, thrown together bit of Goonie Birdie stuff, and it's just wonderful, and it's weird, and it's absolutely in keeping with the picture. Yeah. There... There is an artist whose whose work uh, Gilliam uses a lot, and especially in this film. And I, for the life of me, I cannot remember the artist's name, and my mom is going to kill me because of it. But it, it's an artist who uh, does these uh, large uh, panels of of medieval people. Oh, yeah, no, uh, that that I Hieronymus Bosch. To talk about. Yes, thank you. Yeah, Hieronymus thank Bosch. You. Also, there's a lot of Bruegel in this one. Uh, yes, Bruegel. As well. Bruegel is yeah. The, the peeing and the pooping people uh, especially reminded me of a lot of that 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 style. You know, Garden of Earthly Delights and that sort of thing. No, uh, that that apparently was quite deliberate. Uh, I can, again, vouch from the commentary, and I, I hate to keep yeah. going back to that. But uh, no, the, uh, uh, like I say, it, it's, it's a film that you could call painterly in the sense that, you know, Hieronymus Bosch's work is painterly. It, uh, it, it, it is, you get the feeling that it is, uh, uh, and I have a feeling that I'm probably going to keep coming to this phrase over and over again. You have a feeling that it is, ex it looks like exactly what it was supposed to look like. <laughs> well, uh, why don't we go ahead and take our break there? Well, uh, I, I do, I do want to bring up one interesting detail from the movie. Of course. Like, I mean, it was fun and, and, and comedic, but there's a, a there's a serious uh, element to it that's sort of hidden. They don't do much with it, but it's the kind of serious element that Gilliam does work into his later works. And, and I'm referring to uh, what what does what does our main character want? What is he good at? Like what he actually wants and is good at is this very odd proto capitalist sort of thing like he like he and Mr. Fishfinger he wants to develop a way of hey we'll just make barrels that are really shitty but they're just good enough for what you need little two tuppence barrels and his father is outraged by this because of course it's denigrating the craft of being a cooper and by the way I'm on his father's side I <laughs> uh, what he's recommending is contempt shut up Andy <laughs> what he's what he's recommending is is, is 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 the way the world works now, basically. Uh, and, and he wants to go to the city and implement that as well. Uh, but it's uh, it's very interesting that, the, like, that this is just a detail that's in there. It is kind of an interesting, serious detail. He is sort of good at that, but the father is just like outraged and you're no I son of mine I, and so forth. I wasn't but going to a, disagree with you thing. there. <laughs> I, 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 I know, I just... I just had to get my thought out. No, uh, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, no, I, I, well, it's definitely worth drawing attention to his father's death scene, which is uh, another one of the standouts of the picture. Um, <laughs> where, uh, and apparently uh, that was based on the real experience that, uh, that one of Gilliam's uh, friends had. Uh, he uh, had a friend mm -hmm. who was an artist, and you know, the artist had uh, gone to uh, her father's deathbed, at which point her father just came out with how much he frickin' hated her and everything <laughs> she frickin' stood for. Wow. Uh, so there was a little bit of... Uh, of uh, I, uh, I wrote down uh, what he said, a little bit of what he said. He said he, could, he couldn't believe the cruelty of it and knew it had to go in. <laughs> it's sort of perfect for this movie, but uh, again, yeah. Don, you're absolutely right that it sort of represents uh, two very distinct, uh, op arguably opposing views on you know craftsmanship versus commerce. Uh, it's just stock taker, uh, <laughs> which of course is exactly what Dennis is doing. It can never help. Uh, it can never. Uh, uh, it can never hurt to have an accurate, up to the moment account of your stock. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, Dennis is the kind of person that now rules the world we live in. <laughs> he is the merchants. Yeah. Or what the merchant? Well, he would become the merchants. Uh. Um, well, let's uh, let's go ahead and take our break there. Uh, we will be right back.
And we're back. Uh, next up, we have Time Bandits. Uh, who here considers this a children's film? Uh, I do. <laughs> sort of. I've just seen it. That's one of those things that uh, that, that I still find debatable even now. And uh, I, I, I know I've told uh, at least Nate this story multiple times, and I think I may have actually mentioned it on uh, on uh, Bastards of the Universe, uh, our, our other podcast, or at least my other podcast, uh, which Nate is now on and which I've been on for a while. But the uh, I saw this movie on my sixth birthday uh, in uh, January of 1982, so I spent ages afterwards thinking that it was a 1982 release uh, until I eventually discovered it was a 1981 release, and it was just that the uh, the two-screen cinema at the Main Coast Mall in Ellsworth uh, was, in fact, a second-run theater. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, this was uh, th this was a, a seminal film, uh, both in my experience of cinema as well as uh, I think to a great extent in my development uh, as a person uh, just in general. And that, amongst other things, it was my introduction to the ambiguous finale. Uh, should which I, we'll get to. Which we'll get to. Uh, <laughs> Uh, like I say, funny story about that, but I, I am obliged to consider it a children's film, sort of in the sense that early 80s nightmare fuel, uh, or late 70s, early 80s nightmare fuel, like, you know, Watership Down and uh, uh, the, the Bakshi Lord of the Rings and, uh, and uh, um, um, uh, the Dark Crystal uh, were, uh, were, were considered children's films at the time. Just family entertainment was freaking hardcore when I was a kid. Now, uh, out of all of us, uh, I believe this was only on Shane's pile. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, so just to give a little bit of background. Um, so we were originally just going to do Jabberwocky for this episode. And when we decided that, the three of you just started quoting time bands and making references. And then I revealed that I had never seen it. And all three of you just instantly just lost your minds. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, to give the uh, listener a peek behind the curtain in podcasting business, we have this fancy spreadsheet where we keep track of the movies that we're going to do. And next to each movie is the person who hasn't seen them. So Old Boy would be Don, Cuckoo's Nest was Nate, and Time Bandits is my name next to it. And then in parentheses, Jesus! As if you guys just couldn't <laughs> believe that I had never seen this movie. That, that, that was me, and I stick by it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did something similar for Godzilla. Yeah, so, I mean, this was my first time seeing it. And I'll admit, I had been avoiding this movie for a while, because I'm not crazy about Brazil, which I've seen multiple times. And I knew that they were part of sort of this informal trilogy. So that may be why I never really went out of my way to see Time Bandits. But that being said, I, I really did enjoy this movie. I, another movie I really wish I'd seen as a kid. If I'd seen it as a kid, this would definitely be one of my like lifetime, all-time favorites. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. every, even as an adult, everything in it worked for me. And I could just see my, my younger self enjoying it as well. I do want to ask a question, though. Was Terry Gilliam molested by a toaster as a kid? Because <laughs> there is this weird obsession with uh, crazy kitchen appliances that doesn't seem to have anything else to do with anything else in the movie. So I don't know. Is that some kind of – unless I'm missing some bit of subtext there. I, uh, no, I, 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 I think it has to do with when he was growing up, this idea of acquiring household gadgets was like one of the major things pushed in advertising – uh, uh, and and just the, the capital world of the the era as this is what you do when you've made it as a person is you get all these wonderful gadgets and he he uses that as a standard go to I think especially in this movie I think it shows uh, he he has such a disdain for the middle class or at least the middle class that existed in his time that makes sense yeah no there's a uh, this was part of an, at that point, pretty ongoing trend uh, of uh, pushback against uh, uh, the fr the phrase that I always heard was crass consumerism. Uh, yeah, but uh, that that definitely fits in it. But just the uh, the absolute, you know, blandness of uh, of um, his uh, his uh, parents, their complete evident lack of inner life, uh, it definitely uh, is sort of a. a rough uh, earth for this kid's uh, imagination to flourish in. They're the true evil of the film. <laughs> well, 
I don't know. At this point, last things first. I'm going to go back to my story there. Uh, it's like it's like I say. The, my my main carry away from this movie, aside from how nifty it was uh, from moment to moment. Uh, I mean, has a, has a terrific score. Again, absolutely flawless visuals that, uh, given their limitations, really haven't dated a bit. Uh, and that absolutely batty, uh, wonderful closing theme by George Harrison, who, of course, was uh, actually the uh, executive producer of the film. This was, uh, I believe, the first production of, uh, of Handmade Films, which was George Harrison's uh, company, and uh, w- which my dad would randomly hum for years afterwards. The, uh, it's the, a catchy tune. It's a catchy yep. tune. I'll be, da- I'll be damned if I can tell you what the words are. But, uh, but It's the- Japanese. It's Japanese. <laughs> It just means dream away. Oh, well, okay, that makes sense. Even so, <laughs> uh, like I say, the ending—the ending—I'm not going to put too fine a point on it. The ending fucked me up as a kid uh, because, uh, <laughs> like I say, this was my sixth birthday. I was very much dependent upon and fond of uh, my parents. So there's the end where. Um, uh, Kevin has has uh, uh, remanifested inside his house, and uh, then both of his parents uh, take a look at the uh, uh, the toaster oven, which uh, the fireman brings out, and it's got the big chunk of uh, of uh, evil in it. And of course, he's mom, dad, don't touch it; it's evil. And of course, they both reach reach right into it, and they boom, and and they're gone, and and he's left alone, standing on his lawn. <laughs> after after Sean Connery winks at him. Yeah. Yeah. Now well leaving okay, it so... aside leaving it aside that it took years for me to realize that this was given how awful his parents were not an unhappy ending. That said, I I have to give uh g- give great props to my dad for uh the conversation that followed which was you know, after the closing credits had rolled, and of course there was no further resolution as to what the the little kid's situation was, I I turned to my dad and say, "Dad, what what happened to his parents?" And my dad, God bless him, turns to me and dead ass says, "Well, they got absorbed into evil, Aunt." <laughs> and, and then we went home, and I had cake. <laughs> That's, that's wow. Yeah, I, I, I like like I say this is this is me at six years old. Uh, I like I'm not gonna kid that that movie fucked me up for life, but I don't think it was all in a bad way. The uh, yeah, so one of the one of the things I love about the film is the classic children's story trope is it's a dream, a flight of the imagination, and you return to the world at the end. I'll be and with photographic evidence. And no, 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 hang on, you're jumping ahead again. Oh, so okay. uh, uh, it should resolve in a way, and, and Terry Gilliam does not do that. He he does not do that, and and it does can fuck up a child. Like there's a reason you do it that way because it can be too unsettling to a child. But but it's not just a children's movie. It's a little more than that. And so yeah. The kid, the kid, it, it's not just a dream because he's got photos. He's like, what this, this freaking happened? And then, uh, and then of course the parents, I, and here's, here's my take now. I, and let's, let me see what you think of it. The, the parents are done away with as a gift from the Supreme being. Oh yeah. Because, because I at the agree. end they're like, shouldn't he get something? Like one of the, one of the, I think Fidget says, shouldn't he get something? He helped us out, you know? And the screen doesn't, doesn't say no. He just says, hey, we're leaving, we're leaving. And then the next thing you know, he's waking up and uh, he is given something, isn't he? <laughs> his, I completely his, his agree with that His shitty life is destroyed. <laughs> and maybe he can have a I absolutely, uh, I absolutely, <laughs> that, that is now absolutely my headcanon. That had not occurred to me before. The, uh, this is one of those films that is so deeply wired into my neural network that uh, it, it is occasionally difficult for me to see new things in it, uh, just you know things that I know very very well and love. Uh, that being said, uh, the second time that I saw the movie was uh, the first time, and this was several years later, and seeing it on television was the first time that I realized, oh yeah, his parents were horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The third <laughs> they time. They really are bad. 
the third time that I watched it, which was not long after the second time, because by that time we had a VHS machine and I had the presence of mind to tape it, was that, oh yeah, one of those Polaroids is of a literal map of the universe. Um, now, uh, Don, I'm curious, uh, how old were you when you first saw Time Bandits? Uh, I think I was about nine years old. Okay. I was about the same age, uh, eight, nine, somewhere in there. And I think that, uh, seeing it as a child really does, uh, seeing it as a child and then as an adult who knows about film and that sort of thing, uh, is a really interesting juxtaposition. Um, because what I think of, uh, what what goes on now is very different from from how I felt then. Uh, a good, for instance, would be uh, I thought Randall was just the coolest guy on the planet. This he I wanted to be like Randall. I understood right. Randall. He had goggles. He was awesome. Uh-huh. He was the leader. I I I love that guy. So we agreed, no leader. The... <laughs> do what I so shut, shut up, up and do what I say. Uh, so when we get to the part where uh, where we're in Greece and uh, and he's with Agamemnon and everything does seem to be exactly how Kevin wants it to be. It's his it's his preferred life and they take him away. Um, my mom tried to explain to me at the time that was what he wanted in life. He wanted to be with Agamemnon. He loved it there and yeah. they took it from him. And my first question was, why wouldn't he want to be with Randall? <laughs> Why didn't he want to be with the awesome, awesome bandits? They're they're so great. <laughs> I, I think you may have a measure of con man at heart there, uh, Nate. Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I I it took me a while to notice this, uh, but when he when Agamemnon does the magic trick, he actually does it. Yeah, like he yeah. actually pulls the, the thing just a little bit too far over so that it falls in, and then he puts his hand down there to get the ball. I was like, wait a minute, he actually did the trick. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I was I was waiting for a cutaway or something, but nope, it was all just in one shot. Back in the way, I would have absolutely paid real money for a Sean Connery close-up magic show. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's kind of, uh, of the many things in this movie that are worth the price of admission, that one is worth the price of admission all by itself. 100%. <laughs> I know uh, when I was a kid watching this, I, ha- I had a favorite character, which was Randall. Uh, did anybody else have a particular favorite character? I have to go with Napoleon. Um, and, and I love, as sort of an incidental grace note uh, to all of this, that this technically forms a trilogy with at least two other projects that Ian Holm played Napoleon in. There was a BBC miniseries in the 70s, and there was uh, The Emperor's New Clothes in, I want to say, 2002 or thereabouts, where he was pl- uh, playing Napoleon after exile. Uh, but uh, his I- interpretation of, uh, of Napoleon is, is just beautiful. And of course, this time he played a lot more for laughs, uh, as well as sort of wounded ego uh, than, uh, that, than, uh, than he did in the other instances. Uh, but uh, the thing is, if you look at them in the sequence that they, were, uh, that they were made, they actually do have a direct chronological order. Uh, the, uh, uh, the miniseries was, uh, was relatively early Napoleon. This is kind of Napoleon after he's gotten, a, a right, like right when he's in the middle of the shit. And uh, the Emperor's New Clothes was uh, Napoleon in exile. So that's kind of a fun sort of incidental connection to that as well. But uh, uh, it's also interesting seeing this uh, with Ian Holm, uh, considering that the movie he had done right before this was Alien. So that's kind of a fun segue in its own right. That was, yeah, that, oh, wow, yeah. What a great (laughs) follow-up. And, of course, uh, a definite runner-up on that one would be uh, David Warner as evil. I should say the incomparable David Warner as, uh, as evil, which, uh, uh, again, is just such a magnificently assured character and uh, performance that it, 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 it was just sort of instantly iconic to me. And just such a perfect costume design. I know, with that little touch of Guy Garishness, uh, particularly to the headpiece. Uh, Oh, the knife coming out of that was incredible. I, yeah. I could, I've seen you know much more expensive, more modern movies where there's uh, 
a replica of a face that looks much less convincing. I had to double take before I realized that wasn't actually his face there. It's spinning around with the, the thing, the knife coming out of it. That, that looked awesome. It's just a very quick cut where he went full statue, but it is a supremely well-crafted statue. Yeah. Yeah, the attention to art direction in this movie is really, really nice. How much did this movie yeah. cost? This movie looked expensive as Five hell. million dollars. Wow. That was the budget. Okay. Wow. Because, like, every ten minutes you have a different enormous set piece, it seemed yeah. like. I don't know how they got that done. I mean, I know 1980 money went a lot further, but wow. That's, yeah, yeah, I mean, at the same... Yeah. Well, I mean, look at it this way. This was, uh, what, uh, four years, I guess it was made four years after they made Star Wars. Star Wars cost twice as much, and the effects in Time Bandits have dated less than uh, some of the optical work in uh, in, in Star Wars. Again, For sure. it's, yeah. it's one of those movies that just holds up no matter how close you look at it, uh, given that some of the stuff is deliberately done for a very broad comic effect in its own right. Yeah. I mean, even the even the Minotaur guy looks pretty decent. I mean, that head oh, I looks love really, that Minotaur. really good. The, the, the concept of going with it with a, uh, a guy having a bull mask was really inspired, in my opinion. Hmm. Absolutely, and again, the the look of the uh, the Minotaur mask felt uh, had a certain measure of that ramshackle quality that the Jabberwocky in uh, in Jabberwocky had, and as I said, in that case, definitely feature, not bug. Something I found interesting about the camera work is this entire film, a good majority of it, is shot in low angles, uh, from the perspective of either our bandits themselves or a child. Um, which goes into the art direction as well, which uh, a lot of the set pieces would have uh, uh, parts of Kevin's room show up as, as items yes. like Lego blocks in, the, yes. in oh, yeah. the dark tower. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The Lego blocks. Uh, when you, once uh, the first time you notice that the Lego blocks are in the, the palace, you can't unsee it. It's like, those are giant Lego blocks. They actually made them. That's great. Well, I mean, at the same time, most of the rest of his rescuers, when uh, when uh, he is uh, on the point of getting done for by evil, uh, are themselves uh, toys uh, that we can see scattered around uh, his room at both uh, the yep. beginning and the end of the picture. Yep. Which is a wonderfully inspired little touch, but which makes it all the more ballsy, as you said, that uh, that Gilliam, you know, does not back off from you know this being a genuine experience at the end of the picture. Right. And and I have to also give uh, give credit to uh, to Gilliam for ending the film with the first literal Deus ex machina since <laughs> since ancient Greece. <laughs> it, it's a literal Deus ex machina. It's a god and a machine because he even refers to it. Oh, it's the most tiresome manifestation. Like, oh wait a minute. Oh no. <laughs> uh, he had to have done that on purpose. He had to have written it that way on purpose. Oh yeah. I mean, I it's kind of love. Uh, I kind of love Ralph Richardson as a very doddering uh, supreme being in its own right, which uh, evidently yes. that was supposed to be an aspect. Uh, if I recall from the synopsis that I read way back in the day, that was supposed to have been the aspect that they would have really leaned into uh, in uh, the sequel uh, if they had ever yeah. gotten that made, where it was. Uh, it basically started off with uh, with God uh, and uh, the devil, who is a hand puppet. God is hand puppeting, uh, deciding to destroy <laughs> the world. <laughs> uh, that sounds about right. That, that's the bit I particularly remember. And of course, it would have followed a, uh, a grown up Kevin and uh, and uh, his kids. Uh, but uh, I think, as you uh, ma- uh, mentioned, uh, well, why, why don't you uh, talk about what you were going to talk about during the, uh, the break, Don? What was I going to talk about? Remind oh, uh, why time? Why Time Bandits Two didn't happen? Oh, yeah. So there was going to be a Time Bandits Two, and it was going to. There were two characters that were going to be in it. Apparently, featured pretty heavily: Wally, uh, Jack Purvis, and uh, Randall, whose name is Rappaport. David Rappaport. Um, David Rappaport. David Rappaport. And uh, they and uh, Purvis had died. I think of old age. I mean, he was in his sixties. But Rappaport had killed himself um, and uh, shot himself in the chest. Uh, there was a, actually there was a role. There's a Star Trek connection. Rappaport was going to be in the Star Trek Next Generation episode, The Most Toys. He was going to be the Saul Rubinek character who collected data. But he tried to oh. kill himself. Uh, they, were, they had already started filming. 
and he tried to kill himself, and he and they had to reshoot it and redo it, and they recast him as Saul. Rub- they recast Saul Rubinek in that role instead, and then he really did kill himself not long after that. He finished finished that's, himself off. It's a very that's sad a, story. That's a, a very sad story, but an odd one too because I love the I love that Star Trek episode. But finding out yeah. that it was going to be Randall, Randall was going to have collected data. Oh man, how that would have been great. That would have been uh, amazing. I, I remember. Shame. What yeah, a great episode, much. too. So, yeah, there was going to be a Time Bandits 2, but they lost two of the principals. And, you know, they have been uh, making rumblings for a while about uh, possibly doing a uh, TV series. I think it was originally announced in something like 2017 as an Amazon project, but uh, none of the specific details about it have ever really come out. And uh, as far as I know, nothing, uh, no further movement has been made on it. Do you know whether Gilliam was going to be attached to that? uh, I believe that he was involved with it. I'm not sure he was going to be directing. Uh, If he'd been involved, I might have actually given that a watch. I find myself wondering if their relationship didn't sort of incidentally sour in the meantime, uh, just because Amazon had both gotten its hands on and successfully executed Good Omens, which Gilliam has be, had been previously beating his head against a wall trying to get made for about a decade prior, which admittedly is not the most unusual story in uh, in Gilliam's uh, oeuvre. He's uh, uh, another one of these characters like Orson Welles, uh, to, who, uh, where to some extent he is as well known for the projects he didn't get made uh, as uh, for the projects that he did. I still haven't seen The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. I still haven't either. That is actually on my pile as well. And Uh, I'm actually reading Don Quixote right now. Oh, Oh, that's that's an interesting book. Yeah, Yeah, I want to talk about... Well, did you you have something else to say, Andy? No, no, I was just going to say that that one's actually on my pile as well. So maybe we ought to put that to the list and, you know, (laughs) possibly revisit Gilliam at some point later on. Maybe. So I, I wanted to talk about the billing of the actors a little bit, which... You know, John Cleese is, billed, yeah. is top billed, who was in the movie for literally two minutes. I believe Sean Connery is second, who's in it for the most, I guess, the most out of the guest stars, and maybe five minutes total. Um, yep. There was definitely some discrimination going on there. I, I'm assuming if, if this movie were made nowadays, they would not let that slide. I mean, the, the bandits Welcome were Welcome to Hollywood. Yeah, the bandits were credited first in the end credits. I, I, I always kind of assumed that the reason that that happened was probably one of the only reasons this movie got made and released in the first well, yeah. place was right. the all-star guest stars. Uh, exactly. That, yeah. that was kind of the take that I already had. But, but you're right, from a purely objective standpoint, it is completely unfair. Yeah, I, I guarantee you their, uh, their agents got that sorted out way before anybody got their hands on making the actual movie. Right, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, Kevin. I think it, Kevin did not have much pull. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it it would have been fun if uh, you know the, at the end when everyone showed up on all the toys, if some of the uh, like if Robin Hood had showed up and Agamemnon. I mean, I guess Agamemnon's people showed up, but uh, yeah, just for for John Cleese to appear for literally two minutes, and he probably shot for half a day. I was like, wow, he's first build. That's that's kind of nuts. Kevin is kind of the newt of the uh, Terry Gilliam movies. <laughs> he is. He got out of film. He got Child out of actor film. who appeared in nothing else, but he seems to have had a decent enough life. And I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I was about to say, I may be remembering this incorrectly, but I was under the impression that, like Carrie Henn, uh, Craig Warnock had also become a school teacher at some point. I think that's oh. right. <laughs> yeah, this movie made me think of, you know, the 80s movies that... that that always starred little kids, and several of them starred Barrett Oliver. Uh, he was in The NeverEnding Story, uh, Daryl in uh, Cloak and Dagger. He apparently disappeared into Scientology for a long, long oh. time after he left acting. I, I think he's out now, oh, but he was, no. he was in the Sea Org for like 20 years or something like that. Crazy. Oh, oh but, but yeah, sorry for the bummer news. But yeah, that's, that's what <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought of that kid. Just, I was, was going to say, kind of Nate, didn't you hang out with Noah Hathaway that time? Noah Hathaway, what? Yeah, well, our friend Brett did. Brett Buchanan, he, he hung out with Noah Hathaway at a con. Oh, it must have been Brett. Okay. There's a picture of him, like, molesting him. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, well, no, no, I mean, you know. Just grabbing, just grabbing a handful. <laughs> it, no, I think, I think there was a tongue involved. But, I mean, he was, he was a good sport about it. I mean, it was a stage photo. Uh, yeah, a bit of an abrupt segue there. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, I, I, for a lot of child actors, I think that the uh, the lesson is, with relatively rare exceptions, getting out while they still can was probably the right move. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, there's a few stories. There's a few transition into it. Like, I mean, I guess you get your Kirsten Dunst here and there who transitioned to like an adult career, but it doesn't happen that often. Yeah. Yeah. Even so, I will, uh, again, going back to the vague impressions that I had from back when they were still talking about Time Bandits 2 as a feature, I was under the impression that they had at least asked Craig Warnock if he would come back for it, which I think, uh, I, again, if if that didn't happen and if he still had the chops as an adult that he had as a kid, I think that's another kind of a missed opportunity there as well. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's eminently recastable. It would have been nice. It would have been neat. It sucks now, though. They did bring back the, uh, the, the original Andy from the Child's Play franchise into the latest few movies. <laughs> oh, that's right. They did do that. I remember that. Those aren't really a good barometer. <laughs> I'm okay with a recasting. I've always been okay with a recasting. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, if if nothing else, if the man who kill who uh, who killed Don Quixote proves nothing else, that is that given a sufficient span of time, Gilliam can get stuff done. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> Eventually, uh, this is a, a film that was finally made that was the subject more than a decade earlier of probably the most legendary unmaking of a movie. Uh, documentary ever made with the possible exception of uh, that one on uh, I guess it was uh, Otto Preminger's I Claudius uh, that was uh, that was floating around since the 1950s yeah the the documentary is uh, Lost in La Mancha well known than oh that's yeah the document Lost in La Mancha is more well known than uh, the movie itself not least because the movie has not had much of a release over here uh, yet. It's it's kind of snuck out, I think, through uh, some of the video on demand channels, but I'm not sure it's even on domestic video yet. I think it is streaming. Yeah, somewhere. Somewhere. Somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We'll get back to you, folks. <laughs> well, um, does anybody have any final thoughts they'd like to share on uh, Time Bandits? Oh, I, I just want to say I love the scene with the cages and the ropes. Um, yes, it's, even as a kid, it, I love it. It looks like so, I know it's supposed to be kind of scary and tense, but it looks like so much fun. Uh, I mean, I love zip lining. I've only done it like once or twice, but I love doing it. And just watching that scene was just such a delight. It was, it was shot really well, and it was, it was tense in all the right ways, but still had that sense of fun and adventure. I just, I just really, really enjoyed that scene. Rewatching that, I still got tingles. Uh, like, like... When Jack Purvis lets that rope drop and then he drops, I yeah. drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that those cutaways to that fraying rope, I was going nuts. But yeah. but but still loving it. Yeah. It's just that, yeah, that was nice just that was just another one of those moments that was really twisting me in knots at the age of six. <laughs> yeah, watching it as a kid, I didn't I didn't understand what was going on at first when they get into the uh, the little uh, maze area, and then all of a sudden his parents are up there, and the game show music is playing. It's like, what is happening here? Well, like as a nine-year-old, you're kind of not getting the gag, uh, but as an adult watching it, it's just wonderful. It's just really, really good. That is, that is actually another thing that I'll note that I like is the kid is smart without being self-consciously precocious. He's just, you know, he, he's a smart kid. He's got good instincts. He trusts his instincts uh, better than uh, than his cohorts, who are generally looking for the uh, uh, for the uh, easiest uh, path of least resistance. I think with a, a lot of children's films, I think we got this a lot in the '80s. Um, we wanted a more uh, realistic look at, from the perspective of a child, or or at least what we saw as children. Um, and I think we got that with Kevin. I think we got a character who really behaves like an actual child as opposed to a Hollywood writer writing a child. Yeah, he's not some weirdo boy genius. He's just a smart kid. And and that was kind of awesome, uh, again, seeing this <laughs> relatively early in my formative years. This is just trivia, but uh, uh, apparently <laughs> there's a, there, at least one person makes the argument that the... Uh, that the six uh, uh, dwarves represent the different members of the Monty Python troop, <laughs> <laughs> which I like. I'd have to rethink. Like I'd have to think that through again. <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, Randall like... is apparently Cleese. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I see it now. I I think there I see is it. no leader. 
Uh, <laughs> Shut up and do what I say. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Og is uh, Graham Chapman, and of course Berman, who eats everything. That's that's Terry Gilliam himself. He's <laughs> 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 Berman. Uh, isn't Vermin the one who's in the back, like uh, when they're when they're doing the song and dance, and he's just in the back, like playing with the the back. Yeah, looking for something to eat. Yeah, like he gets knocked yeah. aside and he just hangs out back there eating something. <laughs> <laughs> Want more of it the is funny Gilliam. show? Want more of the funny <laughs> show? With the that's what guys, I like. Little things eating each other. <laughs> uh, See, this oh, is what it was like. <laughs> this is what it was like the night. People. I was gonna say when you guys were just doing that. This is what it was like the night we decided we were gonna do this movie. When you guys were doing that, and I was like, "Wait, I haven't seen this movie before." Yeah, but now it's you get it. It's eminently quotable. Yeah, no, it's now you get it. It's supremely quotable. It's uh, I I think it's gonna be one of those things where it, I don't think we've ever put it to the laboratory method, uh, but uh, rather like aliens. Uh, if you put me and Nate and Don in a room collectively, we're probably gonna perform the entire uh, film verbatim. <laughs> At some point, yeah. We don't it's need it, We don't need infinite monkeys. We just need three. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I I love this movie to the, uh, to this day. Like I say, I I know I go on about how it messed me up, but again, feature, not bug. I I love this movie. I love every phosphorescently demented frame of it. You know, I st- yeah, I stand. I'm, I, yeah. I, I'm glad I, I finally saw it. I stand for this till I die. Yeah, the um, uh, the It's sometimes said that it's part of like his trilogy, the imagination, like he likes to call it that. And I think that's actually a fair comment. Like, I do associate this film with, as a, a kind of an imaginative adventure, a sort of adventure of the imagination. That's part of why I still enjoy it so much, even as an adult, because that's something you can appreciate kind of at any age. It is that part of it, that aspect of it is something I, I really do appreciate. The, the trilogy, uh, if you look at it that way, you know, this is the first one because it's the protagonist is a child in Brazil. It's a sort of an adult and then Munchausen, of course, it's an old man. So it's an interesting way of grouping them. I don't know if he intended it that way all along, but uh, it certainly can be looked at that way. I, I like how both uh, Time Bandits and Munchausen have a very theatrical, as in stage theatrical quality to them. They use a lot of uh, stage ideas to, to push some more uh, filmic ideas. It's very interesting. That'll about do it for us on What's on the Pile. Next week, join us for Akira Kurosawa's eight-part anthology, Dreams. You can find us on Twitter at What's on the Pile or go to whatsonthepile.com. Thanks for hanging out.